Good morning, folks. How are we? Doing awesome. <laughs> You're Britain awesome. Just, Britain just woke up. Just <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. Uh, how are you, Debbie? I'm good, thanks. On my lunch hour from work. Oh, yeah? All right, we, we we better be swift. Uh, right. No, no, no. Uh, greetings from beautiful Stockholm. Clear blue skies, sunshine, 14 degrees. It's it's beautiful here actually. I'm not going to complain. We've had uh, some decent weather. I'm hoping for another another beautiful day. Get the kids out in the garden. Yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so let let's crack on then. If if we've got a, a time constraint here, um, Debbie, welcome. Um, first you. of all, thanks for uh, uh, coming on and uh, taking the time to chat with us. Uh, I am really excited actually about chatting with you. I've seen a lot of your stuff online. Uh, obviously, your movement with uh, Salisbury and, um, you know, what you stand for in that regard. And I think just maybe kind of connecting some of the uh, the conversation from uh, last week with Jennifer and, and some of the things that you're trying to achieve. But let's start with um, just an introduction of, of yourself and a little bit maybe of the origin of what it is that you're trying to do with the club. OK, well, thanks very much, guys, for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be on and chat to you about the club. Um, I started Salisbury Rovers uh, nearly five years ago now. So, yeah, it's just over four years. I started it because my son had just started in youth football at the age of nine. Um, and what I saw when he started in youth football, I was pretty uncomfortable with. Not only because um, there was a lot of structure around what people wanted children to do. There's a lot of defined position play. There wasn't much input from the children and um, children were already being selected. Uh, there was a kind of win at all costs mentality. Um, but I just felt that the fun wasn't there either. And what I anticipated with children joining in with a youth sport was that it would be a really fun, positive experience. And actually, from the sidelines as a parent, I could feel the stress um, from the coaches and also from the children from my own child when he came up after a match so I did try and talk to the people who were involved with the club about that and I pretty much realized quickly that I was uh, a lone voice in terms of my discomfort so I started to look at ways in which I could set up a club that would be different and Initial conversations with the local FA suggested that, you know, I'm, I might be able to attach myself to another club, but that didn't seem to be a very practical way of doing things either. So we start, I started from scratch with a friend and my husband and we set up um, a little club, we thought, and um, just on a, a bit of council um, field and we just let children play. And it was really, you know, low numbers, 10, 15 children to start with. And then it developed and we've got to the point now that we actually physically can't take any more children on and we had a waiting list this season of like 40 to 50 children that we just can't physically manage at the moment so our problem presently has been managing the growth of the club um, so it has been a success but there's been many kind of <laughs> ups and downs along the way because we are charting a completely different path I think the core of all that is that our development and evolution is pretty much 
guided by the experience that we've had and the experience our children have. So they very much lead the way in what our club looks like. And so it's a dynamic process and it changes. Well, so you're not just uh, talking the talk, you're walking the walk. We try to. I think as an adult, when you're talking about, you're talking about trying to put children first, mm. you're always talking about somebody else's needs. And so there is always a potential for you to actually patronise the people that you're trying to empower um, or talk on their behalf. And I'm probably doing that presently um, by speaking about the club. But we do actively try to make sure that children are a key part in all the decision making um, about the club and in what the club actually looks like. And that means it's a, it's a mammoth task because children are all different and children are different throughout the age groups. So our, our club looks different depending on what <coughs> session you would see. A session for a six year old would look completely different to a section, session for under 16s. But we're guided by their needs and interests and mm. what motivates them to be part of the game. So uh, yeah, we do we do try to, to 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 walk the walk and not just talk the talk. But that's great. That's great, Debbie. I mean, Debbie, the community that you serve. Um, obviously, you're saying that the growth uh, has been um, obviously quite uh, an unbelievable. Uh, uh, probably beat your expectations when you started. There's a, there's a, I guess there's a cultural belief that people don't want what you're trying to deliver. As you said, you were alone in the, initially with the discomfort of what you were observing. I think obviously walking the walk, as Mark said, do you think then that when once people see it and watch their kids and observe their kids in that environment, that it's actually starting to tip in the community that you serve? Or is there still uh, a wide percentage of people that are, are still out on the other side doing the other stuff? Yeah, I, th I think. I, yeah, I wouldn't want to be sort of over promoting the idea that this is all just easy going and it's, you know, it's a massive success story in the sense that everybody's now converted to, you know, child led football. I think even when people come into the club, there is a, um, not a malevolent, but a natural kind of um, reluctance to embrace uh, children being at the front and centre sometimes so that people aren't doing it because they're <coughs> anything other than the best intentions but it's just this kind of cultural construct that we have around children's football is that it's very much a school-like environment so the adults is the teacher and people come to be taught and so even though they can see their children enjoying it sometimes there's still a sense of um they feel there's an explicit teaching perspective that's lacking and they, they adults like to see an adult front and centre teaching a child, a child something. And <clears throat> I think that comes for me. Uh, we really see that when children do matches. So our sessions are kind of generally joyous, chaotic sessions on a Saturday morning. I coach everybody from, you know, age five to 16. Uh, as I say, the sessions are all very different depending on what the children's needs are. And uh, there's a lot of fun, a lot of positive engagement, and it all feels great. If you put a group of children into a match, a slightly with another team from another club who play more traditionally, then those kinds of um, the, the ideas on which our kind of club is based start to get generally challenged a little bit more because what we're seeing is our children being pitted against more traditional landscape of youth football so a coach on the on the sidelines 
visibly and vocally directing play, organised structures on the team uh, of a you know a kind of under seven team. Everybody's got a place. Everybody's got a role. It all looks like adult football again. And so those worlds do collide when the, our club goes outside of its own kind of environment and plays other teams. And that's when you see the tension. Most. Yeah. Um, but I would be naive to think <clears throat> isn't there. But we do our we do our best to try and be as transparent as we can about what we do. You know, we invite parents along to committee meetings. I'm always, you know, open to being spoken to and discussed with and explaining to people why we're doing what we're doing at the club. And we try and produce lots of documents to engage people in in that philosophy, in the philosophy behind it as well. We also make clear that, you know, people don't like it. There's, there's no hard feelings. There are lots of other clubs you can go mm. elsewhere. So it is an open front door, open back door. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we hope that the people who are with us buy in, but there is always a tension because we are isolated and we're not just isolated locally, we're pretty much isolated nationally. Yeah. <laughs> I think there aren't a lot of people who do what we do, so it can be a kind of lonely path really. Does that sound too depressing? <laughs> no, no, I mean it's 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 realistic. Um, I mean, I would imagine then one of your, your biggest assets in, I guess, the awareness and education of the, the parents when they're, they're fighting their own beliefs is the children. Yeah. Is there, do you, is there a strategy around, obviously, giving them a voice that, so that the parents understand where it is they're coming from? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're very open about the ways. I, I try and be as open as I can about, for example, the way that I would deliver a coach. Um, and parents are always welcome to come onto the fields and see what we're doing. Uh, when we've been over the winter period, we've been in a sports hall, which allows the parents to stand in the, the gallery and watch what we're doing as well. I share our session practices on our WhatsApp group with the parents beforehand so they can see explicitly not only what their own child's going to be doing, but also all the other age ranges are shared as well so they can see what we're doing and what the thought processes are behind that. I invite people to come and speak to us about that as well. It was quite interesting. Um, a while back, we did a little survey with parents and we found out that about 30% of them were actively reading those session plans every week. And I thought that was a real positive that they took the time to do that. So I think it is worth doing that and be just as being as transparent as you can. But what we've moved away from mistake when we started probably was to think that um, child led football or getting the children's voices part of that meant embracing our own adult constructs and, and pathways about um, stakeholder input. So for example, you know, we, we might set up a group, a school might set up a school council and that's the way children are able to voice their opinions to adults in the school. So we kind of followed that like a lot of clubs maybe do or leagues do or the FA do, have a council of children to, um, to at one point when we want them to give us their views about things. We've moved away from that, so it's all much more dynamic uh, because the same type of children who are involved in school councils will be involved in player councils. It's a particular demographic and we want to hear all children. So what we try to create now is an ongoing dialogue when we are delivering sessions to children. And that's from the moment that <coughs> they come into the session to the moment that they leave and in between, really, with their feedback too, so that everything they're allowed to input into everything that we do 
And that has hopefully created a culture which parents are aware of, an environment in which children are free to express their views. And they will say when they don't like things. And they will say when they don't like what we're suggesting. They will say when they want to do something else. And we will change. Um, so one of the most basic uh, things that we've done, we've tried lots of different systems for trying to collect children's views on every session. But the most effective thing that we've done is simply a thumbs up, thumbs down, or uh, you know, in between. Mm -hmm. Right. So at the every at the end of every session, we will sit with a group, we'll chat over what they liked and what they didn't like. We'll do thumbs up, thumbs down, or you know, was it a bit rubbish? And um, that started a little bit stilted, but now they're so used to it, and they'll they'll do that, and they'll explain why, and we'll do that, and they'll explain why, and they'll tell us what could have been better, and it is. I think it's one of the big successes for me because it has just become the point in the session which will change what we do for the next session and it will really help us reflect on how we delivered and, and whether the children enjoyed it because they are now really willing to express their views on their experience and as a coach I think that's absolutely fundamental if we even if we take any arguments about children's rights and put them to one side Coaching's got to be about people, it's got to be about engagement, and it's got to be about dialogue. It's not about us, it's about them. They start, and it's about us trying to work around how to develop and help that person become what they want within the sport, mm. enjoy their sport, and we've got to have communication and dialogue to do that. And with children, it can be incredibly hard um, to, to find the effective way, but that works for us. At the moment, it may change, but that's a, a really effective little strategy that we've used. Well, it's clever. You've, you've given them a voice to at least start the conversation just by obviously, you, you know, using actions, which I think is really clever. I've seen another way and for anyone listening, you know, just silly code words that you can have. So say if the coach is in the session and trying to guide the learning and the kids know and it's just taking too long and they're starting to get, you know, a little bored with the process, they can say a silly code word like pineapple and it's a trigger for the coach just to get off the perch and remember it's not about yeah. them um so it's 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 empowering them to understand well what is that uh, method of communication so that they do have as you say the voice and i love that i love the little gestures i think that's great for anyone who's listening on a podcast it's thumbs up thumbs down and a shaky oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah neutral thumbs thumbs up thumbs down yeah yeah we tried, we tried a little system with, with um coins or little counters into tubs which had smiley faces on or sad faces or like you know neutral face and what we found was that you know we might get like 10 counters which said sad face and we didn't know what they meant and actually when we say to children oh, why, why why didn't like that session nearly always it's someone kicked me i didn't score or <laughs> i should have got a penalty and so it's those little things which tell us that that's a child's experience and it affects them about mm -hmm. how they play and how they experienced that session that day but it didn't necessarily reflect on what we were delivering right. and so that's really hard to determine just by those kind of like you know putting counters in a box so this is a direct kind of face-to-face -face way of doing things and you know with a pineapple our kids will just say that's boring so uh, yeah. <laughs> that's rubbish yeah. <laughs> just before we move on debbie and, and again i don't know mark you know you, you've uh got lots of experience possibly in this another one that i've seen that's really impactful is just having a whiteboard 
but literally it's it's their whiteboard the coach can't go over and it's they just pass it in at the end of the session and they can they can just write whatever they want it's questions it's anything they emotionally feel it takes time to get them confident mm-hmm. enough to use it but if you if you stick with it it becomes part and parcel of the session and it's really all it is it's feedback um and it's and it's anonymous it's completely anonymous as well which helps yeah i, I have a question i mean all this obviously doesn't come from a vacuum. Who is Debbie Sayers? Yeah. Um, well, my background is I'm a lawyer. Um, so I have, was, was a criminal practitioner for about seven years. And then I did a master's and a PhD in human rights and criminal justice. So um, I, I now work back in practice, mainly doing criminal justice work and also the kind of international human rights bent as well um but i also do a lot of freelance work for people in relation to human rights work so yeah i'm a human rights lawyer effectively that's how i describe myself so for me um it fits in with my perspective on mm. people in life really uh, and the respect for the individual is, is absolutely paramount and also you know key conditions and or key core concepts with human rights about the dignity of the, of the individual and autonomy you know it's an absolutely mm-hmm. essential concept in human rights and what we see with children is that we've got what the convention calls evolving capacities they are developing their autonomy and it's, and uh, you know we've got to allow them the space to do that and not just think as we did in the 19th and earliest 20th centuries that children are there to be protected from themselves and that they can't have rational thought um, because they can and there are certain decisions we won't allow them to make for themselves perhaps because there are health and safety issues but there are <coughs> a hell of a lot of decisions which children are quite capable of forming views on and if they are capable of forming views on those views must be heard really and respected Brilliant. do you, do you want to debbie i mean you said earlier um you feel quite isolated even nationally with you know the way that you you're going about your club do you want to go into a, a little bit around, um, obviously, some of the education that we've you were kind enough to, to share with us to have a look at the video and then how you're trying to at least uh, navigate and direct the conversation, um, even with the FA? Do you want to go down that road or is that a no, no with, with the FA no, right now? <laughs> what we do, again, we try and work entirely transparently. Again, core principle of anything to do with human rights is accountability, transparency. Um, and you know, my frustration always is when you you come head to head with bodies, maybe which don't engage with those core principles. Because I think if there is a status quo, if it's going, you know, if you you're raising questions, those who are in uh, positions of authority should be open, transparent, and be prepared to be accountable for positions that they take. And so, if you're raising questions, it shouldn't be seen to be undermining or subversive. It should be um, w- welcome. And encouraged because it creates a positive dialogue hopefully which may improve the game for all involved so we do everything we do publicly um, and so we it's no you know it's no secret that we wrote a letter to the fa about um the development of so-called elite children in youth football in this country and children as young as five being recruited for professional clubs and, and put in so-called elite teams and so um, on the back of that there were a variety of questions that we raised but one of them was to try and ascertain what the 
uh, FA's understanding was of the children's rights agenda within our sports. And so we've tried as best we can to start, kickstart a dialogue about that and what that looks like at putting children front and centre. Um, that, that's a dialogue which we're still pursuing and to varying levels of success, I suppose, but we'll, we'll keep on pursuing it and keep on raising the questions. Uh, another way of trying to deal with that was to start to create a more public discussion away from any organisation or anybody, but just to sort of put some information out there in the public domain about what children's rights are. Because when I've had those discussions on Twitter, quite a lot of the time people kind of come back with comments like, you know, well, that doesn't work for me as a coach, or I don't think, you know, children know what they're doing, or if you ask children something, they won't, you know, they won't understand, or they'll just want pizza for breakfast, so children haven't got the right, you know, they, they don't have the knowledge <laughs> or rationality to be able to make decisions for themselves, so me as a coach, I'm not going to engage with that. So it was about saying, actually... When we're talking about children's rights, children's rights are human rights. You can't, as an individual, decide whether or not somebody has got those rights. You may decide whether, as an individual, whether you're going to respect those rights. Mm. But the fact that they have them is a self-evident truth from the fact that they're in international legal conventions. So to start to have a more constructive discussion about it my first step really was to create a short video about what children's rights actually are um, because they are internationally legally legally bounded norms now they do bind states they don't bind individual to individual but they they do exist and what international human rights treaties try to do is to reflect the human rights that we have and support um, human rights in documents so that people can enforce those rights and hold states accountable for the enforcement in respect of those rights. So it was really about trying to, because you know, anybody who's coaching, anybody within an FA, there's no reason why they should have any background knowledge of international human rights law. So it was about sort of saying, look, here it is, here's the Convention on the Rights of the Child. This is a starting point to a discussion. And then uh, on the back of that, because that was a very kind of generic introduction video, we're going to kind of look at two specific rights, which are particularly important, I think, in uh, children's sport, the right to play and the right to be heard. And, and look more practically about how we could all try to try better to respect those rights within our own environments, really. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um... <laughs> that I think there's so many people that are involved in working with children are just not, as you said, are even aware of the rights of children. Um, I mean, I know that Mark Sweden, um, was it January 1st, 2020? Mm. Yeah, that it became part and parcel of, it was more, there's more legal um, ramifications. Mm -hmm. that yeah. yeah. Do you want to, do you want to, how's, uh, how's that gone in, well, really in Sweden? This has been coming for a while because uh, the sports governments have been speaking, uh, have been speaking about it for a while, but it actually wasn't legally binding on the 1st of January 2020. Again, it's, it's, it's as um, Debbie Renault is a lawyer, of course, it's not easy just putting something into law and saying, there you are, that's it. It really has to be, it's something that has to be practiced in your daily interactions with the children's human rights is something that's practiced in daily interactions, even with parents. 
your daily practice of parents, your daily interactions with the stakeholders club, your, and your, of course, your daily interactions with the children. So it's something also that's in the pedagogy. It's in how you communicate. So it, it's, it's, I see it as more of a living organism as opposed to just a document. And the problem is, I fear, is that if it just ends up being looking at a document, then we'll just treat it as a bunch of very strict rules, which really it's, it's not that either. It's a, it's a great starting point for a discussion, as Debbie says. These are not strict rules, and that's it, and that you bring up to show people that they're wrong. No, they're great points for starting discussion to improve interactions and how we behave towards each other and how we behave towards children, and also to help children and help inform children as well, because adults play a massive part in this as well. Because it's our job to guide children. It's just We don't just say, oh, well, that's what the child wants and leave it at. We also have to think critically, okay, is this best for the child as well? And how can we, I discuss this with the child? So, so the child gets heard and why they think that, and then it leads to another discussion, which may in some way help the child evolve their, their, their thoughts. You know, just you know, just because a child wants a load of candy doesn't mean it's, they should, you know, get it. It's, it's you, you discuss, okay. Yeah, I mean, we've got to understand, I think, what the... Um... You, you're absolutely right. There's a there many, many uh, human rights cases that you'll read. They use the term that rights must be practical and effective, not theoretical and illusory. So the practice of human rights, the biggest battle that anybody ever has is making rights real on the ground, as we would say, yeah. so that they are living and breathing in a dynamic, mm. evolving culture. Exactly. And, uh, it, yeah, they're not just a set of rules to say. But actually, they're pretty meaningless if you look at them. The child has got the right to be heard. Well, what does that mean? So right. we've got to explore it in more detail. Uh, and we can go to interpretive documents like the Convention on the Rights um, of the Child has got a committee, which issues issues really interesting um, interpretive statements for rights, and it gives mm -hmm. lots of details to how that could look. But they are context specific in the sense that as there are fundamental norms which can't be gotten away from, the child has the right to be heard. How that then looks in practice will depend on the implementation between yourself and the child. But we, what we can't, I think, do with something like the right to be heard is prioritise always the adult's view of what's in the best interest of the child above the mm. child's right to be heard because one of the the, the the convention's got four guiding principles one of them is the right to be heard and one of them is the best interest of the child and to some extent they can collide yeah. however when we're trying to decide what's in the best interest of the child the child has a right to be heard within that context mm -hmm. so the example which is as you know Mark's just used there and it's often used in terms of coaching if we let the children decide what to do they'll just want to play games becomes the equivalent of if we let the children decide what to do you know they'll want to eat chocolate for breakfast well actually it's not quite the same you know if you let your child only eat chocolate then there's a safeguarding health issue related right. to that and so this is where the best interest of the child starts to become a really important point so you've heard the child, I want to eat chocolate for breakfast and dinner and tea and, you know, for the next six weeks. But as a parent, you say, I've heard you, but actually that's not going to be good enough because you need to eat other things and you need to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And so your paternalistic um, 
right to kind of balance the, the best interests of the child against that right to be heard actually overtakes that. There are, there are a few contexts in youth sport, I think, where the child's right to be heard becomes overridden by an adult sense of best interests. Because we're not talking about safety most of the time. We're not talking about safeguarding most of the time. We're actually just talking about children's choices in terms of play. So if a child says, you know, I want to play on a main road with a football, then, yeah, as a coach, you might say, yeah, that's not a good idea. But if they say, I don't want to dribble round cones, I want to play a game of Wembley with my mates, you've got to think long and hard, actually, about what right you have to impose the cones. Um, because what is your right? We're not in a school situation. This is not mandatory education. Children are with us voluntarily. They're with us through their own self-motivation. So what is the best interest that you think you have that overrides the child's voice in that context? Right. Now, to start to have those exploratory discussions about what that looks like is hugely threatening, actually, for the coaching status quo, because we're used to, in terms of coach education, being taught this is how you, you know, draft a session plan. This is how you deliver it. This yeah. is how you review it. This is how you, you know, take on board comments from other adult coaches about what you're doing and what you could, how you could be improving it. Generally speaking, the child's voice doesn't <coughs> picture in any of that. It doesn't even come to the, you know, we don't even say, ask the kids if they enjoyed the session. We don't have any conversations like that in terms of, you know, our adult construct of what coaching looks like. So it is it is a massive challenge, I think. Mm. However, if we're doing it properly, I think in terms of really allowing ch children's voice, what you'll quickly find is that there's not this um, con the conflict between coach and child, but there's a dialogue which, you know, you adapt to what they want and they adapt a little bit because they like your ideas and and hopefully you, you know it's much more harmonious than that but we tend to have this situation at the moment where we think if we say to children what do you want to do today they'll all say play matches and we'll think well, what's the point of coaching i'm you know i'm here i'm trained i've got all my badges i'm ready to tell you all the things i know all the certainties about football i've got pockets full of magic coaching gold dust just to sprinkle on you and i can't add anything to your play it's much more common. You, 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 you so, spot on. You spot I? on. Go on, Bryn. Oh, um, just I think if you look around, if you look around, especially North America, um, actually you see it. I think you see it in England in professional clubs. Is that when people are reading about the club and their kid, they, they're stepping into a pathway, right? So they they we we tote this pathway that we've got. You know, the path to this to this end goal of, you know, we've got so many professional players in our curriculum. Um, and as far as your experiences with, with parents that kind of expect this uh, in a kind of certain pathway and, you know, their kid to step into this stream, um, how do they, how are they responding to uh, kind of this idea of things being more, not even just player centered, but player led? Well, I think, we, the way that we've evolved, um, we have tried to be as clear as we possibly can with parents about what we do. So we make our philosophy 
really, really clear in documents we produced um, a document on. Salisbury Rovers and child-centred play, what child-led play, what does that look like? Why do we do what we do? Um, and it's you know really explicit. We don't kind of hold back in using technical terms, whether that's the language of the convention or whether that's the language of skill acquisition. We try and be as clear as we can. And we're evolving all the time because we're learning all the time, but we share that learning and evolution with our parents as we go. Um, some parents won't buy into that. Some parents will stay in the club and still not buy into it. Some parents will stay at the club and never, you know, read anything that we we produce anyway. Some parents won't like it and will move on. But what we can't, we won't have the situation ever that nobody can say. We won't have the situation where people can say, "I didn't know that's what you did. I thought you would do something different." And right. so that's the basis, only you know, in terms of open communication. I think of creating a, a culture in which parents hopefully understand what we're trying to achieve and will i hope embrace the fact that we're not trying to put their child into some kind of artificially created race in which there are arbitrary targets to develop to certain standards by certain ages what we're saying is your child is the most important thing to us at this club and we have got faith in your child and we want your child to have fun and we want your child to be the best footballer they can be, but we also want them to be in a happy child growing up and developing in an age appropriate way. And um, we will never turn around and say to your child, you're not good enough at nine or 10 or 11 or 12, because, you know, we're here for all children and we're mm -hmm. here to help them help them keep in the game, retain them in the game and to keep them developing to their potential as far as they want to develop but if that's not enough for parents if that's not enough that belief and that sure. you know commitments then they can go elsewhere where there is that pathway and there is that pressure and there is that race but we know that the culture is it's um, you know we value precociousness don't we we value early developers we value everybody like looking like the kid who can do 30 keepy-uppies at six or whatever you know that's what everybody thinks that is, is is progress um so it is hard because that's a you know we're taking the pressure off actually but mm. um, you know you know who you are don't you debbie i mean that's the reality is any any good effective organization you know who you are and you know what your purpose is and that seems to be crystal clear and if you don't like it you, you can find yeah. somewhere else and find we it say we're not a broad church now we try to please people i think to start with to try and convince everybody who came through our doors but now it's like actually you know what we're not a broad church if you don't like what we do mm. there are lots of other clubs that do things differently yeah on, on the front of coaching it's funny and i don't know what your perspective is with your coaches there um, the notion of the, the the kid has a voice and they have to play games and you know like as if you 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 don't actually need tools or the skills to coach in that environment because it's all kid led. But the reality is if you're going to do it well and it's going to be this really I don't know it's just I mean I, I've lived the monotonous coaching where you think you have to go through process 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 and in fact you you are bored as a coach but it's liberating when you're with the kids and you know you're co-creating the environments together. That's actually quite hard. That's not an easy skill set. And I think we I think we look at this child led environment as well. Anyone can do it. And in fact, it's the complete opposite. It's way harder than the, yeah. the old style traditional coaching. Yeah. And, and because it's so dynamic as well. So that children are, you know, children are so different. Um, and, you know, particularly on a Saturday, for example, when we have our club sessions, we coach 
all the way through the age groups. I'm constantly thinking all the time of what those, not just what, what's age appropriate, but what those those particular children in that particular group like to do. Mm. And so, and changing it, you know, on your feet, thinking on your feet all the time about adapting it and, and supporting them to adapt it. You know, it's, it's safer, I suppose, to have that script to work from and then just to deliver it and then to get other adults around you to, you know, tell you whether you delivered it well according to the script. But um, it's, it's to have that process where children get a real voice does mean there's, there is chaos. You know, there is chaos involved because children's play is chaotic. But there's an order too. And once you get through, quite often, once they get into a system of, you know what they like, they know what they like, uh, we're all, you know, we're kind of delivering together. It, you know, it's it's us that chaos can kind of balance itself out a little bit. So that hopefully, when I'm say planning for a session, I'm thinking of something that I know the kids are going to want to do, and um, because they told me what they like, and it might be at the end of the last session they said, well, we really like doing this, but we didn't like doing that, and we want to do a game next week that's got it's all about scoring, or you know, we want to do a game where. You know, I want to take a classic thing as the little ones will often say, I want to take on everyone. I want a game where there's me against five people. And so you'll invent little games. And you know, you go back the next week and you've done a lot of planning, but it's what they want. And it's like, you know, so to get that on board, it's just a case of not saying that there's a set curriculum that we're delivering to. We're actually saying that we're trying to take their ideas expand their ideas use our experience to help them see different things but using it also allowing their vision as children uh, and their experience mm. of the game to to you know to to really um develop our own planning because for me the people who are experiencing the game are the, are the, you know they've got the most vital information for yeah. you to plan for as a coach Question for you, Mark, because we're, I mean, Debbie's amateur, um, I'm amateur, uh, Britain as well. I mean, you have a quite a large following anyway with some of the work that you've put out there. You're in a professional club. How does the setting that Debbie's obviously explaining, um, you know, how is that with what you're doing at the professional level? I think there's people that maybe not uh, are listening to this for the first time, maybe not read your blogs. Like, is how far away? Is it close? What What's the AIK way? I mean, I've had a lot of contact with Debbie in the last two and a half years, maybe three years, I think, two years, two and a half years. We've discussed all these things about child use uh, that, that she's discussing. I, I would say, I mean, we stand, we we have very familiar stances, but it's, it's also uh, highly contextual. The culture I'm in here in Stockholm is not the same as the culture... Debbie is in in Salisbury and and the reason why Debbie started um, this club is completely different to the reason why AK started as well so even I think principally we from a viewpoint of view principles I would think we would be extremely extremely similar um, I think uh, I also like the idea and I, I try to encourage this with coaches of this co-creation in practice and actually in games as well. And remember, I went back last, we spoke, said last week about this coach who's the whole focus for a game and he still uses it, he uses a training. How do we make each other better? Let's show me in this 
just game today, how we we can make each other better. And this is obviously can go into so many different uh, uh, football ideas, like uh, support behind, support in front, creating space, opening. And it's it's you can go this, but it starts with how do we make each other better and 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 then, so that would be probably a similar principle and that's that's a code de- these these ideas will be co-designed you know so i think yeah i think we sit we principally we are in very much have the same grounding there i think debbie De- debbie and mark um and Britain, if you've got any insight as well for, for this um skill set of co-creation with your coaches what type of education informally do you do within your organizations to kind of start to explore that with your coach because it's not traditionally taught on fa courses or national governing body courses so what are some of the um strategies you've used to try and get that behavior start to to start to flow within your 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 organizations anyone Anyone? (laughs) from our perspective this has very much been trial and error about what works with different coaches as well because you know people are, are very very different and some people um, can turn up to want to volunteer because we're all volunteer coaches and just have a natural gift with children of engaging with them. And actually the idea of listening to children and playing with children comes very, very easily for them. Um, and you know that's the ideal person really that we're looking for to facilitate play. Uh, other things that we've done is Jerry Peters Gameplay Learn course. Um, which was really useful for uh, coaches to look at broader ideas about facilitation and rather than the coach being up front. And we try to pull together resources and hold coaches meetings and talk about um, how we have managed to develop our practices during the season um, so that children get a better idea of, you know, children have got a better role in the club. Um, So that's always a kind of evolutionary process. But as I say, just as children are individuals, I think, you know, coaches are as well. And so the relationships that we have individually between us as adults, um, you know, sometimes that might mean supporting somebody who's a little bit more nervous about yeah, being children who are chaotic. <laughs> and then other people find the chaos and love the chaos. So, it, you know, it, it, depends on, it depends on the individual. But bringing it back to the core principles of the club always, we, we do have a philosophy, you know, and there are certain things that we don't do. And, uh, you know, as long as people kind of buy into that, then bring their personality to the club. Is you know that's a really important point as well. I think that's uh, really true. What, what Debbie is saying is because every coach is different. You start where people are at, not where you want them to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to start. You have to start there. And and the thing is, it's. I mean, I I work with coaches that are paid and coaches that are parent coaches, so it's a broad spectrum there mm-hmm. to work with. But um, I've said it before. I'm so impressed with some of the parents coaches I've been working with. I, I don't know how they, they do it, turn up after work and put on some of the sessions and communicate in such an elegant way with children and create that little space for them. Um, yeah, it's, um, but as I said, Debbie, I think very much we have similar principles. So it's, yeah, it's, it's your context and how you deal with it is, is, to, yeah. is very culturally embedded, as is mine as well. I think I, the, the important, sorry, Britain. No, you go ahead. I was going to say as well to emphasize I think because what our children's play looks like at a certain age 
Um, so if we're looking at classically the very young child just starting out in the game and it, it's just lots and lots of fun and, and, and silly games and games that they're creating. Uh, and people might then say, well, that's just kind of nonsense because nobody's going to learn anything from football, uh, about football like that. But what we, what we find uh, and the privilege that I have in teaching children across the ages every single week is that that picture changes so dramatically through the ages so that, you know, I have under 16s who are, you know, super, super keen on the technical, tactical detail of football, um, you know, will we'll want things to be quite high intensity and, and quite structured in their practices, but as well as doing free play. So I th what I would say to coaches in terms of embracing that child-led approach, don't think it just takes you to one type of picture because it doesn't because children or they're different within a group but they're different through the ages and what we're trying to work with I suppose is that natural development of children rather than an artificial imposition of targets so actually children will want to do things which are more tactical and technical and and all the kind of coachy type things that we want as they get older it happens naturally that's my experience but um, yeah, don't be afraid of being led by them because it's not time wasted the more time children you know, get to play and, and express themselves through football. It's time you, you, can't, you can't reimpose that later on. You can't make a 15 year old suddenly be, you know, kind of hugely expressive if that's being yeah. taken out of them. Can yeah. I add something there, Britain? Just, just something that, because back to Mike's original questions, it's this, um, this idea of co-creation as well. I need to talk Swedish there. It's it's um, it's not just in children's verbal uh, feedback. It's or the feedback you give them. It's 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 also in their behaviours and actions mm. in, in in the design. So I, I've said I've tried to challenge coaches that look, can you design sessions where the first feedback comes from the design, and then it's true observation. And that's the children telling you how they're acting on the information in the design you have, how they are acting on that and their behaviours, what they're doing, how their football interactions, whatever you want to call it. That informs you what's happening. And that in itself is a co-creation because then you can go in and and start working with that because the, it's their behaviours informing you and, and you can discuss stuff they're doing. So th that becomes a kind of a co-creation itself just through their behaviour. I had a... Um, an ex La Liga and Serie A player was helping do his UEFA A license. It was really funny. So he had to do some work with younger kids. So I got a couple of 10 year olds. And we, I, I said, I, I gave the kids the session that we're going to do. They didn't they know. And I said, look, here, can you just set that up, guys? You know, and they set it up and start doing it themselves. And he said, what I'll do. I said, I said, I said, you know what I want? I think you should do coach what you see, not what you want to see. Mm. And he came up to tell me, "This is really hard." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then after a while, he got it, and he started just manipulating the, the environment a bit, like the, the the pitch and the goals and some rules. And he started getting it after a while. And and I I, I kind of think that's kind of co-creation you're working mm. on. It's the players' act interactions are informing you, and then you're having a dialogue with them because of what they're doing. Then yeah. they would be part of the session. Mm. And adding on so, to that, Mark, as well, sort of uh, and one of the important things that's developed with the older team that I run is that the, um, you know, the, the boys will get a session plan in advance and they, they can set that up. Yeah. And, but when we, 
when we kind of have a little break and if they talk about it, they will say, this isn't working because of this. You know, the pitch is too big or we need to change it like this or, you know, they need players on their team. And so they're changing the dynamic because what I try to say to them all the time is, you know, what does it feel like to you when you're playing this game? So it's not just about my observation of it, which is really, really important. Um, you know, if you're attuned to picking up those signs, that's fantastic. But also if we can get the children and the young people to actually explain to us what their personal experience of playing the game is. Yeah, it is. I think, and that's what an art is like tuning into what kids are doing and then able to elaborate or develop this through conversation. Yeah. The real, it's, it's much it's as Mike's earlier, this is tough. Yeah. I would say that uh, I think in, in, in more areas than one, um, you know, people's beliefs are, are more or less a result of their experiences. And so, you know, in, on grassroots courses in America, um, we're, you know, helping them do a whole part, whole session or play practice play session. And uh, there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of doubt from certain individuals. And so, you know, what we ask them to do is just just try it um, or, you know, try to try to facilitate them getting the experience and then taking in the feedback from it. But uh, a lot of people are still, you know, they're really worried that the kids aren't going to learn the right technique. Um, and it, it's just part of it is because they haven't experienced it. They haven't seen it and they haven't given it time. So it's I think, you know, bringing them to that place. It's also the cultural mean? assumptions, the cultural assumptions that there is a right technique. Yeah. Right, right. And so they're kind of, but we've, you know, that's been our experience for mm. as long as I can remember. Yeah. So, but, you know, once, once they've had that experience, a lot of them, a lot of them come around. And so, you know, in, in allowing players to have, uh, you know, a lot of input or even, you know, leading design. Uh, we have to be willing to, you know, try it, and it doesn't have to be your thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of good things. I mean, I think the th one that jumps out at me the most is is being vulnerable straight away, being vulnerable to know that, you, you know, you're learning, and we talked about this on many episodes already about, you know, the optimization of you as a coach is going to be naturally from the environment that you're in, and it's going to change. It's like you say, Britain, being vulnerable enough to try something new and and letting down these preconceived ideas that there is a right way um, is being vulnerable enough to sit back and let the coaches inform uh, the players inform you and let give and get input from them. And I mean, all of these, the, the, the question that I originally asked, you, you know, I know there are, we're all coming from different um, starting points. We're all coming from different cultures, but I think the key um, response from all of you is there's certain questions that you ask your coaches and it's that ability to, 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 you know, take a big step back, reflect, and then really, it's like if you use Dennis's comment, be present, you know, be present to what matters, not to what you can measure. And the session plan is, for, for me, in my experience, was always, you're always measuring against your session plan. So it has to be literally, I have to do one, two, three, four, and if I don't, I've failed. And that's not what we're saying here. I'd like to issue a challenge. Anyone who listens to this, test this. I've done this on myself a few times. God, it's not easy. So if you have a group, say, just a match, a small target game, maybe four against four or whatever, with young kids, just then after a few minutes, say to them, okay, blues go over there, reds go over there. Discuss amongst yourselves what you think you need to work on, what you need to do, and how you're going to solve this, how you're going to beat the opponent, how you're going to stop them from scoring. 
and you've one minute and then we're going to play. Do not ask them what they said. Mm. A lot of coaches will go and say, so what did you discuss? Would you? Don't. See if you can observe what they spoke about. Yeah. And that's really challenging. Can you yeah. observe what they actually discussed with each other? So, you know, the questions, um, you know, Mike, you brought this up last time, you know, are we even needed? Mm. And uh, so this, this kind of changes the perspective a little bit on, on, on the role. And so, you know, we're facilitating experiences for the players and then maybe through questioning and instructional constraints and design, uh, trying to help them become attuned to the information that's, that's important in achieving their objective. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're spot on. And, and to kind of come back to last week, you know, we know we're needed. I just don't know if we're needed in the capacity that that we think we're needed. It's I'm just trying say, to repair all the damage you've done. <laughs> <laughs> we, we it's the notion of us being architects of oh. an environment versus you know. Britain, Britain, don't break up the band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, we've always said on there we're just going to ask questions. So if it's made that you reflect for a week, then I've done my job. Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> So where, what's next for um, uh, Salisbury now? Where, where do you do you have any ideas where you want to do? What do you want to where you want to take it? What do you want to do? Um, it, it's a tricky one at the moment, obviously, for the current state of football. It's something that we are looking at within the next month, really. What happens to the club as we evolve next season? Hopefully, mm. as we return next season, uh, what we know is that we've gone through a period of rapid growth and that um, there's a potential when that happens for diluting what we're trying to do as well so we want you know we want to be judged on the experience that we can provide children and if that experience isn't as good as it could be then we need to change to make sure that the that the experience improves and so we're always looking to do that um, we want to keep the club small and personal um, make sure that children are working with, you know, small group in small groups, and that they're known to coaches, and that they've got a still as big a role as they have done. So there's lots of ideas around at the moment about how that could look as we move forward. But I guess you can you co-create the future together with the young with absolutely. the children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Debbie, I don't know if you've, you've you managed to check out Jennifer's work. I mean, it sounds like your club's built on the basically the transformational leadership principles in, in some capacity. Um, so I don't know if your coaches, if there's any curiosity from your coaches to, to check that work out, because it is really good. Um, before we wrap up, I just a little story. And you, we always talk about, you know, coaches when you're in that flow, that state of flow. I think the one time where I I, I experienced that and it, we actually kind of put a little bit of it the, on um, YouTube and we gave two groups, we split them up. There was a wide range of ages based on the program we were in. We gave them a couple of conditions that they had to try and solve and then what was the problem. We just said create the environment that will bring out this problem. And if, if we wrap this session up, we gave them a voice. They had their whiteboard. They were thinking about the game, thinking about how they could bring out the behaviors. And then they pitched their session to each group. So there was, you know, 10 kids here, 10 kids here, and they were pitching it to each other. And you're, you're bang on. Everything we've talked about, we said, OK, which one are we going to do? And the kids knew exactly which one they wanted to do. Even the kids that designed this one and were proud of it, like that one. <laughs> and we went out there and the, the intensity 
and the um, engagement from the players was at the highest I have ever been a part of. Because one, we're all stubborn as individuals. We want our session to succeed. So they made sure it, it was successful. Yeah. But they were in and they were engaged and they were and, and honestly, to, to Mark's point, my job was just to kind of observe and then just continue to 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 um, probe them to see what else they could find out in that environment. And I challenge anyone to do it. I'll, I'll put that video link or at least that uh, uh, YouTube link as well on the on this podcast. Again, that was uh, an experiment for me in one of my early stages of doing this stuff. But just go and try it. Just go and try it. Be vulnerable. Uh, it could be a, an epic fail. Doesn't mean it's not working. Just do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And that's a brilliant example. But there's no sense of failure if the children are happy with what Correct. Spot the on. session is. So, I mean, that that for me, if, if I turn up and there's a session and they don't like it and they change it and it's all different, that's a success. Yeah. It's not like what's on my plan. But it all goes back very briefly to that autonomy again. That autonomy of the individual as the individual is developing, that capacity to express themselves and who they are through the sport, so fundamental to football and creativity. And if we can allow that to, you know, if we can cherish that and, and, and facilitate that, then, uh, you know, that's where the self-motivation comes from. And nobody ever forced somebody to become a good footballer. It comes mm. from within. So that's what we're trying mm. to cherish and, and facilitate too. Well said, well said. Uh, anything else to wrap up? And by the way, disclaimer, don't try and do Mark's challenge if you don't live in Sweden because you can't play football right now. So don't grab this <laughs> together and try and do this. Okay. <laughs> Great, Debbie, uh, thank you. We've already been on to lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Debbie, uh, thanks Thanks for kind of pushing this path forward. Um, it's, it's uncommon. Um, I'm in a club where I've pushed smaller bits of, of kind of uncommon approaches uh, as far as multi-sport and everything. And it's really, really difficult. And I haven't bit off quite as big of a chunk as you have. So it's really good to see that, uh, you know, the club's successful and uh, pretty inspiring. So I've got quite a few notes and uh, really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys, for chatting this through today. Yeah, yeah, keep up the good work. And uh, if I'm ever back home, if I'm ever allowed to fly, I'd love to come and visit as well and check yeah. it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mark, anything? No, I'm fine. I, I was really, really good. A sunny day listening to what uh, is happening in Salisbury is really, really a good tonic. Yeah. Oh, good. Smashing. Great. Well, thanks, Great. folks. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Debbie.